you would turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Luke. We're going to look at a statement made there in just a moment and several things said by John the Immerser in our study time today. You know, it's been said that one of the constants in life is, is change. And I think most would agree with that if you look at your own life and what has happened through the years, you see a lot of change, don't you? You think about who you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years, 30 or 40 years ago. There's been a lot of change. Change in physical appearance, change in attitude, change in socioeconomic status perhaps. Change is a constant in life. So we shouldn't have a problem then understanding the concept of repentance because repentance brings with it or carries with it the idea of, of change. When John began his preaching, John the Immerser, John the Baptist, he began, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus began his public ministry, the message was the same. And as they were preparing individuals for the kingdom that was soon to be established, they wanted them to understand two main things. One is that kingdom is at hand, but first you must repent. You must change. So this constant in life is something that is expected of the disciple. And it's not a one-time act. Even though we go to Acts, the second chapter, and we, we, we see when the question was raised by the Jews on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? The response was, repent. The kingdom was there. He didn't have to say repent, but the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but because the, the kingdom was there. He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. You need to be baptized to have your sins forgiven. But first, you're going to have to repent. Now, they were, they were baptized immediately for the most part. There were some other things that were said. But there wasn't time for significant change in their lives in terms of outward appearance. So the repentance was a commitment. It was a change of mind that would in turn lead to a change of action. Now I say all that to go back now to a statement that's made by Luke in the third chapter. It's made by John. It's recorded by Luke in the third chapter of his, his gospel. And, and the statement was that they were to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So here is an element of repentance that needs to be understood by the disciple... And that is that if you truly repent, there's going to be produce. There's going to be fruit in your life that will be evident, that will be seen. There's going to be some change. Now, John then made reference to the fact that many in the crowd were descendants of Abraham. Because in their minds and in their thinking, being a descendant of Abraham sort of grandfathered me into this coming kingdom. 
Well, you could be a member of the Jewish nation just by virtue of birth, physical birth. You could be a descendant of Abraham just by virtue of physical birth. And then, of course, John said, God can raise up sons of Abraham from stones. There's something else. There's something else that's involved in being a member of this kingdom that the Messiah came to establish. Then they asked the question, and it's a very important question, and the question was, what shall we do? They got it, didn't they? They understood what he meant when he said, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance involves change. And it's not just a change of mind. It's a change of action. It's a change of behavior. You see that question asked here in Luke chapter 3 and verse 10, the crowds, what shall we do? And then the tax collectors in verse 12, what shall we do? And then the Roman soldiers in verse 14, what shall we do? When's the last time you asked yourself that question? What do I need to do? And notice the, the, the Roman soldiers didn't ask, well, what do the tax collectors need to do? And the tax collectors didn't ask, well, what do the Roman soldiers need to do? And the general populace didn't ask, well, what do the tax collectors and the Roman soldiers need to do? They each looked within themselves, realizing that there was some need for change, and they wanted to know, what do I need to do? I need to ask myself that question, and you need to ask yourself that question. Now, as we look at the discussion, there's something I want you to see here, and we're going to be looking at the responses that were given by John to the crowds, the tax collectors, and then the Roman soldiers. But I want you to notice in these responses, there was nothing that the world would consider life-shattering about what they were told to do. In fact, what they were told to do was nothing that would make its way to the front page of the newspaper. It wasn't necessarily anything to write home about, as we would say. The change that John presents to each one of these was change that was very doable. What shall we do? Well, here's some things that you can do. He didn't tell them to do things that they couldn't do. He told them to do things that was within their power to actually do. And that's the way we need to see repentance. I don't have to do what the tax collectors were asked to do in terms of their specific situation. In general, I do. But everybody has something something that needs to change in their life. And so you need to challenge yourself this morning with the question, what do I need to do? In general, notice first, in John's response to the question, the answer was to reach out to the needy. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. 
you see what I mean when I say that's not going to show up on the front page of the newspaper? You know, if, if you've got an extra coat, he didn't say to give both of them away. He said you are to share with the one who is in need. And you're to do likewise with food. If you have more than you need as far as the daily essentials of life, if you have a surplus, then what do you do with the surplus? You don't do like the rich man who is described elsewhere in the gospel accounts who, builds down, who tears down his barns and builds bigger barns so that he can have more surplus. John says very simply and to the point, you are to reach out to the needy. I find it interesting in Romans, the 12th chapter, that the Apostle Paul uses the exact same word that was used by John in Luke chapter 3 and verse 11, and that is the word share. In Romans chapter 12, Paul uses the word gives, which means essentially the same. Romans chapter 12, in, in listing those gifts, those abilities that certain ones have. He said, he who gives is to do so with liberality. We talk about liberals and conservatives. A lot of us like to say, well, I'm a conservative. Well, it's okay to be a conservative, but in certain areas of life, you need to be a liberal. <laughs> you, need to be, you need to be a liberal in love. You need to be a liberal in giving. But this is a mindset. It's a mindset that controls your thinking. Let's go back to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament in the wisdom literature. And I want you to notice several Proverbs that point us in this direction and help us to develop a frame of reference that is going to influence how we live. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, first. He who oppresses the poor... And those are the ones who were in need, taunts his maker. Now, this is taking advantage of the poor. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And if you're looking at the verse, you'll see that him there, the letter H, is capitalized. What he's saying is that if you're gracious to the needy, you honor God. It's not just what you're doing for the needy. It's what you're doing in service to God. Now, you may want to keep your finger there at Proverbs chapter 14 and go to chapter 17 of the book of Proverbs and notice the first part of that proverb. He who mocks the poor, Proverbs 17 verse 5, taunts his maker. Remember Proverbs 14, verse 31, we just read, he who oppresses the poor takes advantage, taunts his maker. Now in chapter 17 and verse 5, he who mocks the poor, the one that just makes fun of those who have less, the one who looks down his nose at one who has less, you're mocking God. If you oppress the poor, you are taunting God. If you're gracious to the needy, you're honoring 
God? What, what, what does God have to do with how I treat the needy? In Proverbs 22 and verse 2, we find the answer. Proverbs 22 and verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. Have you ever thought about that? The rich and the poor have a common bond. Verse 2 goes on, Proverbs 22, the Lord is the maker of them all. God made you and he made everybody else. And if you're the poor man or the rich man, God made you. There's a common bond. And I think that's why Luke chose to use the word that's translated share. Share with him who has none. We think about our children and we tell them, you need to share your toys. But I'm the one who received it as a birthday present. Why should I share my toy with my sibling? Well, <laughs> bringing this into the home, because you have a common bond. You were both made by the parents who gave you the gift, and the parent expects you to share. So if you want to do something that shows fruits in keeping with repentance, you reach out to the needy. This is consistent with what is taught elsewhere in the New Testament after the death of John the, the Immerser and after the death of Jesus in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, for example. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to all people. Reach out to the needy. You have a surplus, you share it. You share it. The second group that... John addressed in Luke chapter 3 is an interesting bunch because they're the tax collectors. And they came and they also came to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Now most people don't get as excited about studying tax during the first century as would someone in my shoes. As a CPA, I find this interesting. One of the characteristics of a good system of taxation is it has to be structured in such a way so as to be able to collect the tax in a relatively easy fashion. You make it too difficult to collect the tax, it's not a good tax system. Well, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have the Department of the Treasury and the Internal Revenue Service as we have them today. So what they would do is that the rich would buy the opportunity to collect tax in certain areas. They had the money. And, and the way they bought it, here's the tax that the Roman government expects. We'll just use Coleman. Here's the tax that the government expects to collect on all the property, all the income in Coleman. Well, I've got all the money, so I go to the government and I say, can I, I, I want to buy, I want to buy that. So I pay the government what the government expects to collect from this particular area. 
and then I go out and I hire individuals to collect that tax for me because I'm a rich guy. I don't do that kind of stuff. I just hire people to do it. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to hire a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector who is in turn going to hire tax collectors underneath him. Now what I expect is them to collect the tax so that I can recoup what I have paid to the Roman government. But I do have other things that I could be doing with my time, so I expect to earn a return on that investment. I expect a profit on this business enterprise. And each level of tax collector would expect the same. Well, overhead's overhead. That's understandable. You, you, you got to be able to pay your rent. You got to be able to buy your office supplies. That's, that's expected. But the tax collectors abuse the system, certain ones, not all of them. Certain tax collectors abuse the system. And what they would do is they would collect more than they were legally entitled to collect. But I got high overhead. I've got more overhead. It's called little John, little Sally, little Susie. And then I've got to put my wife in this mix. You know, it's mama's money too. But they would take advantage of the system. In other words, they weren't practicing their business. They were not practicing their craft with integrity. And I'll tell you what happens when you put money in the picture. Oftentimes, it changes people. And integrity goes out the door. We've all seen that, haven't we? So if you want to do something, it's not going to make the front page of the newspaper, but it's going to be pleasing in the sight of God. Live your life, your business life, your life as an employee. Live it with integrity. That's something you can do. That is doable. It's something within your sphere of control. Now let's look at some Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 9. He who walks in integrity walks securely. Proverbs 10 verse 9. He who walks in integrity walks securely. You don't have to worry about going to jail if you're doing the right thing. You don't have to worry about getting a speeding ticket if you're going the speed limit. He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. What goes around comes around. The choice is ours. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. There's benefit to be a person of integrity. There's benefit to doing the right thing. It's never wrong to do the right thing. There's benefit to collecting no more than what you've or been ordered to collect. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 7. Proverbs 20 and verse 7. A righteous man walks in his integrity. How blessed are his sons after him. Why are his sons blessed? Because of his influence. 
on his children. He's walking in integrity. He's teaching his children to be people of integrity. He's teaching his children that it's never wrong to do the right thing and it's never right to do the wrong thing. It's always right to collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Chapter 28 of the book of Proverbs and verse 6. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than, than he who is crooked though he be rich. You may think unethical business practices will not be found out, but eventually they will. You may think that unethical business practices are going to make you rich, and they will. But you're not going to be walking securely because what goes around, again, comes around. And it's better to be the poor man who collects no more than what you have been ordered to and who walks in his integrity. This is what it means to be a son of God. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a, a child of God. People are watching what we do at the workplace. People are watching what we do in our, our businesses. What do they see? In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the apostle Peter wrote that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Trust is hard to earn, but you can do it with integrity. You walk in integrity. You collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. People will trust that person. You live otherwise, and the trust will be broken. Chapter 3, 1 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 16. Peter writes, Keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You may suffer economically because you're not gaming the system. You're not taking advantage of others. But better is he who walks in his integrity than the crooked. The final group addressed are the soldiers. The Roman soldiers come. And they ask the question, what shall we do? And he told them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Well, I look at that, and I, I try to fit it into a, a grouping, 
And what I see is in their position as Roman soldiers, and, and actually these, these may or may not have been Roman soldiers. These may have been the, the soldiers who were under the authority of the Romans, but more like local policemen. But regardless, they were in a position that they could take money from anyone by force. I mean, they, they had their abusers too. You know, not all, all, not all, bad, all policemen are bad, but there, there are some who take advantage of their authority, and there were some who did that 2,000 years ago. And they would also accuse people falsely so as to gain an advantage, or maybe they just didn't like them, didn't like the way they looked. Well, if you're in a position of authority, you can accuse someone falsely and, and, and put that person away. And then he told them to be content with their wages. Again, I'm, I'm guessing under the influence of the Holy Spirit that John was telling them things that hit home in their situation. But this was their, their job. This was, this was what they did. That is, they were soldiers. And I think what John is essentially telling them to do is in that position in your responsibility, in your business, in your employment, whether you're the, the manager, the supervisor, the partner, the owner, the employee, regardless, you let your light shine at, at the workplace. It's an opportunity. It, it's an opportunity to do that very thing. In Ephesians chapter 6, you'll notice where Paul is addressing, addressing the, the, the master-slave relationship as we often see that and and he's I think it's appropriate for us to apply that to the employer employee relationship but in, in Ephesians we, we see beginning here at verse 9 of chapter 6 slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ now that's so difficult to take what Paul is teaching here to the workplace. And to think of my employer and my employer, in my case, are my clients. And to see the work that I do for them as that which I'm doing for Christ. Not by way of eye service. I'm not just here to make myself look good as a men pleaser, but as a slave of Christ doing the will of God from the heart because that's God's will. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So if I change the way I think at the workplace, and I'm continuously changing the way I think at the workplace, then, as we said earlier, what goes around comes around. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we see further instruction given, but in this case, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, there's a bit of additional information here. Uh, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Bosses aren't always reasonable. They don't always do the reasonable thing. Number one complaint oftentimes is management. Management's not reasonable. At some point in life, you just have to realize, well, that, that's just the way it is. It is what it is. I can't change that, 
I can't cause their repentance, but I can bring fruits in keeping with repentance and I can change who I am. I can be submissive whether they're good, gentle, or unreasonable. Doesn't change my behavior. You see, that's what John was leading them to is change the way you do your job. It's not going to show up on the front page of the newspaper. You're not going to be the rant of social media. But you let your light shine. And you're going to glorify God in the way you behave. And what about that matter of contentment? Be content with your wages. You've heard me say this before. Nobody ever makes enough money. I don't know how many discussions I have with my clients, and it's even more difficult right now. I had a meeting with a, a business owner this past week, and they were talking about how difficult it is to employ people. And I don't know if I should put this number out there or not, but, but the statement is made, you can't get anybody to do anything for less than $15 an hour. Well, nobody's content with their wages anymore. I mean, I can make $15 an hour staying home. Just drawing my check. You have to pay me more than $15 an hour. I can go to McDonald's. They're begging people to work for $15 an hour. And again, if you can do better for yourself, do better for yourself. But he told the soldiers, be content. Be content with your wages. Paul wrote in Philippians 4 and verse 11, not that I speak from want, and he was speaking of the support that he had received in preaching the gospel, not that I speak from want, but I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Whether it's minimum wage or maximum wage, whatever that might be, be content. Do not take anyone money from anyone by force. Do not take advantage of your position. Do not accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. And it's not easy to, sh it's not hard to shine that light these days because so few, so few do it. What do I need to do? Maybe there's something beyond these categories, but I can start by reaching out to the needy, being a person of integrity, and shining my light at the workplace. Let's go to God now in prayer.